the second anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine looming and foot-dragging by the U.S. Congress, is Russian President Vladimir Putin becoming bolder? The war, these assassinations, all the other things going on in Russia are just a function of his personal desires. The G20 meeting starts with a rebuke of the U.N. As demonstrated by the Security Council's unacceptable paralysis. And two canals, lots of ships, big problems. This has deeply cut the revenue typically receives from ships going through the canal that was bringing in around $10 billion a year, declined by nearly 40 to 50%. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. On Saturday, Ukraine marks the second anniversary of the Russian invasion. And as the war enters its third year, the infantry of the Ukrainian 59th Brigade on the front lines resisting Russian troops is confronting a bleak reality. They're running out of soldiers and ammunition. Here's Reuters correspondent Alice Rizzo with their story. Reuters reporters spent two weeks near the front line ahead of the February 24th anniversary speaking to more than 20 soldiers and commanders. While still motivated to fight the Russian invaders, they described the challenges of holding off a larger and better supplied enemy. One of them is a company commander who goes by the call sign Limousine. We have a big problem with manpower. We simply lack men. People have lost their enthusiasm, which they had at the beginning of the full-scale invasion. We need big reinforcements. Many people here are tired. Another commander estimated that just 60 to 70 percent of the several thousand men in the brigade at the start of the conflict were still serving. The rest had been killed, wounded or signed off. Our guys are now spending more time in the trenches and on positions. You can see yourself what the weather's like. Rain, snow, rain, snow. As a result, people simply get ill with flu or angina. They're out of action for some time, and there is nobody to replace them. In December, Putin ordered Russia's forces to be increased by 170,000 troops to 1.3 million. Ukrainian officials have said their armed forces number around 800,000. Artillery shells are also in short supply, with Kyiv relying heavily on money and equipment from abroad to fund its war effort. If America doesn't assist Ukraine, Putin is all too likely to succeed. But with $61 billion in U.S. aid held up by political bickering in Washington, and with the EU conceding it will miss its target to supply a million shells to Ukraine, it is looking more exposed than ever. Even if the front lines have largely stagnated in the last 14 months, Moscow now controls almost a fifth of Ukrainian territory in a war that combines trench combat and high-tech drones warfare. Cheap to produce, drones can surveil enemy movements and drop ordnance with pinpoint accuracy. On the Ukrainian side alone, more than 300,000 drones were ordered from producers last year and more than 100,000 sent to the front. Digital Minister Mikhailo Fedorov told Reuters. Moscow has also invested heavily in the technology, 
allowing it to nullify Ukraine's early advantage. Limousine said Russia's widespread use of drones made it difficult for Ukrainian troops. Even to dig out a position is now a problem. Our guys start to do something, a drone sees them, and a second drone arrives to drop something onto them. Drone pilot Leleka said the high number of drones arriving at the battlefield were like taxis at the airport. Recently, we were trying to destroy a dugout, to destroy a place from which they were firing. There was a queue of drones to destroy this firing point. But Ukraine's drones did force the Russians to move valuable vehicles and weapon systems back by several miles, according to two drone pilots in different units. This drone pilot in the 24th Mechanized Brigade uses the call sign NATO. After we got good drones, in two or three months it's now very hard to find vehicles to hit. We led very successful drone attacks, then now we have less of those. But again, this is actually a positive outcome. Both sides are now strengthening their electronic warfare systems, which can disrupt the frequencies sent from the pilot to the drone, making them miss their target or drop out of the sky. Reuters correspondent Alice Rizzo. Joining us now to talk about this is Professor Robert Ortung at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University. It seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong and you can correct me if you think I am, it seems to me that Putin and his regime have become much bolder recently. There's so much um, the assassination in Spain, the arrest of the dual citizen uh, from L.A., the arrest of a reporter charged with espionage. Um, He's pushing forward in Ukraine. Um, Is it me or is that seem to be happening? No, I, I think that you're right in the sense that he does seem to be much bolder and they're taking much uh, stronger actions. But, you know, like with the death of Navalny, for example, it's clear that it was Putin had to have been involved in the killing of him. And But in the past, you know, you could say that he's become bolder because he didn't want to kill Navalny in the past. He was afraid of doing that. But... You know, he did actually try to kill Navalny a couple of years ago with the the famous poisoned underwear incident. So, you know, it's true that he's becoming bolder, but it hasn't really changed his spots. It's still the same Putin. He's just doing much more than he's, you know, that he wanted to do in the past that he's capable of doing now. You know, I was talking with someone yesterday about it and um, like somebody said oh it's it's like a return to the cold war and i was like i i don't remember russia assassinating like the the defector the the russian who flew the helicopter to ukraine they found his body in spain it's more like a mafia or drug cartel now than it was the soviet union in the cold war no yes it's much much worse now because in the soviet times you had the politburo which was a much more institutionalized way of ruling the Soviet Union. And you you didn't have the same kind of personal power concentrated in one man 
as you do now. And so now there's not really any limits on Putin. There's no institutional checks on what he can do. If he orders a killing or some other event, that's going to happen. So the war, these assassinations, all the other things going on in Russia are just a function of his personal desires rather than any institutional system, which is what we had in the Soviet times. They they put extreme sanctions on Russia when the Ukraine war started, and it doesn't seem to be working. The economy seems to be okay. Not spectacular, but they're surviving. They're, we're expecting more sanctions this week from the White House. But is that viable? I mean, is, is it going to do anything? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the real question is, what does it mean for sanctions to be working? And so, you know, we need we use sanctions when we don't want to go to war directly. They're a way of signaling that we're unhappy. So we're not going to take military means directly against Russia. We're going to impose economic penalties. And so I think in that sense, in the, in the sense of signaling unhappiness from the West, that's important. All the efforts to block flights out of Russia, to kick them off of the SWIFT banking system, all these things are really having an impact. And, you know, Russia's had to change from being integrated in the Western system to now being much more dependent on China. So, you know, it, it hasn't stopped Russia from fighting in Ukraine. That's true. But it has put severe penalties on Russia and really reorganize the way the Russian state and the Russian economy is functioning. So we need to, when we say that sanctions are or are not working, we need to be very specific in, you know, what aspect of the economy or in their behavior we're talking about. How far do you think he can squeeze his own population? Is there a breaking point? Well, it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near the breaking point if there is one. I think people now are so afraid of doing anything, and the ones who would stand up to him ordinarily have left the country. So I don't really see any opportunities for some kind of mass revolt or even mass protest. Um, only in an extreme incident, if there was some kind of huge natural disaster and the Russian state wasn't able to respond, something like that. But you know, barring some, some very unforeseen event, I don't really see much change. You know, we've seen leaders in Venezuela, North Korea, they can really drive the economy into the ground without provoking any kind of social response. And that's probably what we're going to have in Russia. Professor Robert Ortung at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University. Following these other stories from around the world, convoys of tractors disrupted traffic around the Spanish capital on Wednesday, farmers protesting against what they see as excessive red tape and insufficient state aid. They converged in downtown Madrid to march toward the agriculture ministry. Farmers have been protesting for weeks across Europe, including in Poland, Greece, and the Czech Republic. They all call for less bureaucracy linked to the European Union's common agriculture policy and a loosening of the bloc's environmental roles. U.S. Representative Mike Gallagher, who chairs the House of Representatives Select Committee on China, arrived in Taiwan on Thursday with a delegation of other lawmakers and will meet with senior Taiwanese leaders. 
former nuns who said they were subjected to sexual, psychological, or spiritual abuse by a famous priest urged Pope Francis on Wednesday to allow an independent investigation, saying the Catholic Church had put up a rubber wall blocking the truth. Father Marco Ivan Rupnik, a religious artist whose mosaics adorn about 200 churches and chapels around the world, including in the Vatican, was expelled from the Jesuit order last year and is believed to be somewhere in his native Slovenia. Brazil opened a conference of foreign ministers from the G20 group of nations on Wednesday by blaming the United Nations and other multinational bodies for failing to stop mounting wars and conflicts that are killing innocent people. Brazil's foreign minister, Mauro Vieira. Multilateral institutions are not adequately equipped to deal with current challenges, as demonstrated by the Security Council's unacceptable paralysis in relation to ongoing conflicts. The state of inaction results in the loss of innocent lives. Ministers from the G20 nations, including the United States and Russia, began a free discussion of current world tensions and ways to improve multilateral organizations, a priority set by Brazilian President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, along with curbing climate change and reducing poverty. Israel's parliament voted on Wednesday to back Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's declaration opposing the unilateral creation of a Palestinian state following growing international calls for the revival of efforts to reach a two-state solution to the decades-long conflict. The people of Israel and their elected representatives are united today as never before. The Knesset voted overwhelmingly to oppose any attempt to unilaterally impose a Palestinian state on Israel. Such an attempt will only endanger Israel and will prevent the genuine peace that we all seek. Peace can only be achieved after we achieve total victory over Hamas and through direct negotiations between the parties, direct negotiations without preconditions. One opposition leader said the entire move was a political spin by Netanyahu. International Edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. There are two very narrow bodies of water, canals, one in the Middle East and one in Central America. And while they're very small, narrow, the role they play in global commerce is gigantic, and both have the same problem, well, for two different reasons. The number of ships that travel through them has been cut way down, and that has made the things people all over the world buy more expensive. We begin in the Middle East with the Suez Canal and Edward Uranian in Cairo. The Greek flag grain ship Sea Champion was slightly damaged Wednesday by two ballistic missiles fired by the northern Yemen-based Houthi group, which says it is attacking western ships in solidarity with Hamas militants fighting Israel. 
because of such attacks, many ships that normally pass by Yemen, headed to or from the Suez Canal, are now avoiding the area and taking the longer route around the Horn of Africa. This has deeply cut the revenue Egypt typically receives from ships going through the canal, according to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. He says that Egypt was affected by the COVID-19 virus for two years, hitting the Egyptian economy in a big way. Then the Russia-Ukraine conflict added to the economic issues, and now along most all of Egypt's borders with Libya, Sudan, and now Gaza, it is getting pressured. Now, Al-Sisi says, Egypt is witnessing revenue from this vital waterway that was bringing in around $10 billion a year, declined by nearly 40 to 50 percent. Saeed Sadiq, a professor of political sociology at the Egypt-Japan University of Science and Technology in Alexandria, says Egypt isn't the only country that is being affected by fewer ships transversing the canal. If the conflict continues, he says, supply chains all over the world will be affected, especially since many of the cargoes that pass through the canal are oil and gas ships heading to Europe, and that will make the European economies suffer a lot. Joshua Landis, who heads the Middle East Studies program at the University of Oklahoma, tells VOA the conflict in Gaza has had repercussions on many Middle East fault lines, in addition to the Red Sea conflict affecting world shipping. It's ratcheted up the war between Iran and the United States. It's increased violence in countries like Iraq and Syria, along borders that had become stalemates. It's increased instability from one end of the Middle East to the other. It's like throwing a firecracker into the middle of a a beehive. Landis adds that Iran, which controls many of the proxy militias that are participating in far-flung corners of the Gaza conflict, has the United States by the short hairs, pulling it into conflicts not only with the Houthis in Yemen, but also with Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria. Paul Sullivan, Washington-based Middle East and energy analyst at the Atlantic Council, warns the Houthis are not deterred by any of the U.S. and British retaliatory airstrikes that have been made against them. He says that may indicate that they have more sources of financing, training, and weapons than was previously known. Yemen, Sullivan adds, has been at war for a good part of its history, and many of those involved with the attacks are battle-hardened. They also live by a mountain code which rules out not responding to threats like many others have. Edward Uranian, VOA News, Cairo. Now, the same situation is taking place in Central America at the Panama Canal, for a different reason. Here's a report by Gina Dulo, narrated by Joe Ramsey. The Panama Canal works because local fresh water fills the locks between the oceans. As one of the world's rainiest countries, ample fresh water is not usually a problem in Panama, but below average rainfall caused by the El Nino climate pattern is limiting the number of ships in the canal for the first time in its history. Canal meteorologist Gloria Orocha says passages were cut from 36 a day last August to 22 in November. November had a deficit but it was not as bad as we thought. So we increased the amount of transits per day to 24 in January. Authorities estimate that low water levels reducing ship traffic could cost Panama as much as $200 million in lost revenue compared with the previous year. That drop is also being felt locally. 
Ray Sanchez owns a scuba shop on the Caribbean coast. He says business is down at least 50%. Out here, I have any, almost any traffic uh, from the cruise ships, for example, that they stop. I have maybe one or two people that uh, will contact me for diving purposes, unlike it was before. Before we get, you know, three to four a year groups of, you know, five to six people. U.S. businesses are the biggest users of the canal, with 73% of its traffic moving either to or from the United States. Washington is working closely with Panamanian authorities to help, says U.S. Embassy Counselor of Economic Affairs Vicki LeMay. One example is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is working with the Panama Canal Authority on some of their medium and longer term infrastructure planning and water management issues. Uh, we're also helping find ways to attract more U.S. investment to the canal and to Panama. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will spur the kind of innovation and investment in new technologies that will help them mitigate and adapt to climate change. Canal authorities are planning a new reservoir to maintain water levels at least through 2075, says Panama Canal Deputy Administrator Ilya Morota. We'll definitely continue looking at other options, other alternatives of saving water and so forth, because, you know, we, we got to remain a vital route for forever. <laughs> Panama Canal has proven how important it is in over 100 years, and we see that this year our clients really, really want to come by. We just don't have enough space for everybody. As part of getting back to full capacity, authorities this year appointed the Panama Canal's first chief sustainability officer to create a more robust strategy to address climate change and make canal operations carbon neutral by 2030. Joe Ramsey, VOA News. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone here at VOA, thank you so much for being with us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On his recent visit to Albania, Secretary of State Antony Blinken lauded the stronger-than-ever partnership between the United States and Albania. He noted in particular that Albania has been, from day one, a strong supporter of Ukraine. It was one of the first countries to send military aid to Ukraine in the wake of the Russian aggression. Guns, ammunition, mine-resistant vehicles, and is currently one of the top ten per capita uh, in terms of its support for Ukraine and security assistance. During its 15-year membership in NATO, Albania has made significant contributions to the alliance, said Secretary Blinken. Albanian troops are helping to keep the peace in Kosovo to deter Russian aggression on NATO's eastern flank. Next month, Albania will inaugurate a NATO airbase in Kuchava. The United States and Albania are also growing their bilateral security partnership, said Secretary Blinken. Albanians and Americans have fought side by side from Afghanistan to Iraq. Albanian pilots fly American-made Blackhawks. U.S. Special Forces are training their Albanian counterparts and helping to keep watch in the Balkans. In the wake of the recent Iranian cyber attacks targeting Albanian critical infrastructure, the United States has supported Albania's cyber defenses, helping to train experts to upgrade equipment to improve technology so that they're more resilient to future attacks. In an effort to promote justice reform in Albania, Secretary Blinken met with key judges and prosecutors. 
will continue to strongly support Albania in these efforts, which are critical steps toward Albania joining the European Union and what the people in Albania deserve, said Secretary Blinken. Democracies continue to be threatened by disinformation, which fuels division and erodes trust. The U.S. and Albania signed a Memorandum of Understanding to develop a shared approach to countering dangerous distortions and lies and build a resilient information ecosystem. With regard to economic growth, Secretary Blinken noted that American investment in Albania has tripled since 2019, and it will only grow more as the business climate continues to improve. Our companies are exploring hydropower, wind, solar projects in Albania. These have great potential to diversify Albanian energy resources and sources, to help our shared planet, and to create inclusive economic growth for everyone. The United States remains committed to expanding its already strong relationship with Albania in the years to come. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 